a little thing can make a big difference. I know there are some inspirational posters that are done, and on one of them it says, Attitude, that little thing that makes a big difference. And I'm sure every one of us can recognize our attitude on a given day impacts how we handle a circumstance. If we're in a grumpy mood with a bad attitude, everything is overwhelming. If we really have a more upbeat attitude, no matter what difficulty may come, we think we'll see our way through it. Because attitude is that little thing that makes a big difference. Well, the same is certainly true when it comes to other areas of life where the impact of a little thing is monumental. I would think as Texans we would believe that Texas has the best ice cream of anywhere in the United States. But a little thing, a little bacteria, shut down Bluebell. Sometimes we have alerts that are given. Maybe it's chicken, ground beef, lettuce, salads. We have to have a recall because there's a bacteria within them and individuals have been getting sick. Sometimes people even die from partaking of what is to be a good thing. But that little bacteria makes a big difference. And what is for our good ends up being for our detriment. There was a great panic a number of years ago with Tylenol. Somebody had tampered with it. And people were taking Tylenol as they used to do, and only they were dying from it. Because it had been contaminated with a little poison. And that little poison made something that was beneficial detrimental. The examples we can find in these circumstances, be they food products or the attitude that we have when we approach circumstances in life, have to do with the way you and I live life. The decisions we make. And what we need to know is that a little thing can make a profound difference and even overrule or destroy what is good. And that's what Solomon is telling us in this section before us. Where he compares flies to folly. We know in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been talking to us about where we find real meaning, purpose, fulfillment in life. We could really say where we find the good life. And in the first six chapters, he says, you won't find it in focusing on or living for the temporal things. Instead, where you find it is focusing upon 
and building upon the Lord Himself. And in chapters 7 through 12, Solomon is bringing forth statements that reinforce the value, the benefit of having a God-centered life. And in particular, he has been talking to us about the supreme value of wisdom. How essential and necessary it is for any man, any woman, going through life. And in a very real sense, these concluding chapters in Ecclesiastes might be thought of as some statement similar to what Solomon had said in another work he did, that is the book of Proverbs, where he provides these little proverbial statements to help us better understand how important it is to build our lives upon God and the value that we derive from living our life according to His way. In other words, he is talking about having a God-given wisdom as we approach the circumstances of our daily life. And I'd like to begin reading in chapter 9 for the truth that Solomon wants us to recognize in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, Verily do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, a man does not know his time like a fish caught in a treacherous uh, net, and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared in an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, And he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. And the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Now as we look at this section, you'll notice in verse 16, Solomon is making the conclusion from an historical event that he looked at and he drew a spiritual truth from it. We saw the fact that there was this small city with no resource to deliver itself from the attack of a great king with a mighty army that had surrounded the city and was about ready to capture it. He had built those large siege works against it. But it said there was found a poor wise man there, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. 
And the point that Solomon wants us to understand, he brings out in verses uh, 16 and also in verse 18. Wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. In other words, he wants us to recognize that wisdom is essential for any individual to handle the desperate circumstances in life. Really, when everything's going well, it doesn't matter much what you believe or how wise or how foolish you are. You're just tooling along and everything's coming up roses. But the reality is when you get slapped in the face by some some unforeseen circumstance, like the bird that is ensnared in the trap, or as an individual who has an unseen evil experience come upon them. You don't know when it's coming. You don't know the time that it might affect you. You need to be ready for those unseen circumstances that in the eyes of the world are hopeless. What is it that will enable you to cope with it, to handle it? Wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than weapons of war because the poor man by his wisdom, no other resource was available to him. He couldn't bribe the king to leave and depart. He didn't have the financial resources. That city did not have the weapons of war to go toe-to-toe against this mighty king who came with his army. But the only resource available to them was the resource of the wisdom of this poor individual. And the reality is that after he delivered the city by his wisdom, people forgot all about him because he was a nobody. He wasn't one of the prominent, honored individuals within the community. And what Solomon wants us to recognize is that even though wisdom may not be appreciated by man, even though you may not receive any honor from the wisdom that you possess, wisdom is still the most prized possession that you can have. Because you and I are going to face those difficult circumstances in life. We're going to be hit with those things that causes the life of an individual to unravel. When they become hopeless, they don't know what to do. And only wisdom gives the individual the skill to handle it effectively and to come forth triumphantly. In this, Solomon is recognizing that the kind of wisdom that he is speaking about is not necessarily the wisdom that one gains from the study of all of the various Uh, areas of this life. Solomon very carefully is brought out in the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe even more dramatically in the book of Proverbs, that wisdom comes from God. And the place that we begin to have or the source of having that wisdom from God has to do with giving him the proper fear, the proper respect, the proper trust, the proper love that he alone deserves. You and I, as we grow older, 
we find far too often the reality that some of the world's smartest individuals, the reputable authorities, find no ability to cope with the unforeseen circumstances that come in life. Having one's PhD, having the position of respect, and being given acknowledgement by the people of the world doesn't mean you have the ability to say, I can put life together and I know how to weather the storm that is before me. David made it very clear that individuals need to seek God when He can be found. Because when you're engrossed in the problem, the emotions begin to take over. And you cannot think clearly. And instead of being able to handle and cope with the difficulties that come, you get swept away. It blows you away. The idea of having this wisdom that Solomon is talking about is the wisdom that comes from God. I want you to go with me back to the book of Proverbs. I'd like you to go with me to Proverbs chapter 8. When Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, he wrote it as a teacher to his students. He called his students sons. And in the reality, as a father, I'm taking it, he was communicating it to his own son as well. And in the first nine chapters, almost a third of the book of Proverbs, Solomon has one uh, concept involved. And that is... Young person, you're pursuing life, you're beginning, you're looking to find all that is beneficial for your well-being, then what you need to know that the most valuable thing that you can ever do is get wisdom. A third of the book, chapters 10 through 31, he begins expressing sayings of wisdom. But in chapters 1 through 9, he keeps saying, My son, in all of your endeavors, what you need to understand that more important than anything else is to get wisdom. And that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And so he is saying here, we need to understand that without this wisdom that comes from God, we're not going to be able to cope. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 8 in Proverbs, he says, Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? uh, She is calling. And she says in verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discern uh, discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in every evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mind and sound wisdom. I am understanding, power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge righteously. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. What comes from it? Riches and honor with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold and even pure gold, and my yield than the choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow to those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasures. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way 
before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, and from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, and when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were lifted up, before the hills, I was brought forth, while he had not made yet the earth and the field. The point is, wisdom dwells with God. And God is pleased to bestow his wisdom on those who seek him and fear him. Regardless of what you have in life, if you don't have wisdom, you're not going to be able to correctly and adequately handle the problems that come. So Solomon says, here's my conclusion, verse 16 of chapter 9. Wisdom is better than strength. Verse 18, wisdom is better than the weapons of war. It is essential for us to have wisdom in order to handle the problems that we'll face in life. I need to understand the wisdom that God alone gives is the greatest resource available to any individual. It's what God used to lay the foundation of the earth. If we had read further in chapter 9, it's what God uses now to rule over the creation he has made. It's the reality of God at work in all of creation and in history and the lives of the creatures of this earth to accomplish his purpose. You understand how uh, excuse me, Isaiah said that in Isaiah 40? Who has been the counselor of the Lord? God didn't call a committee together and say, you know, I need to figure out how to bring the world into existence. I need to know how to design the universe. I need to know how to make man in, in my own image. He didn't consult with anyone. Wisdom is something inherent with the being of God. And God is the one who bestows wisdom upon human beings. And having that element of wisdom that tells me here is how I can successfully handle the circumstances in life is to seek his face and to know that from him comes that wisdom that enables me to faithfully fulfill my desire to honor him and to have what's beneficial for myself as I go through life. Where do I find it? Notice verse 17. He said, The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. I can't help but think that Solomon is probably still taking truths out of the event that he had recounted. And you find the clamor that is going on with the leader of the city, the ruler that's there, speaking to all the subjects that are within it. And there is a clamor, there's an arrogance, there's let's get things in order and in place. But they had no way to cope with what was there. In fact, when Solomon describes wisdom as a female, he makes a distinction in Proverbs chapter 9 between the woman of wisdom and the woman of folly. And what you find is there is a refinement and orderliness to the woman of wisdom. 
But he says the woman of folly is boisterous. She's loud and brash, arrogant, with no ability to come to the right conclusions. There's the contrast Solomon is making. The words of the wise are heard where? In quietness. But in the midst of the chaos and the clamor and people shouting, this is what we need to do, they don't have the answer to what needs to be done. I need to pause for a moment and underscore the fact that when we start talking about a ruler among fools, or we talk about one sinner who destroys much good, or we talk about a little foolishness in verse 1 in chapter 10, we're not talking about people being silly. The idea in the books of wisdom in the Scripture is that Solomon lists on one side the characteristics of those that are associated with the Lord, and the characteristics on the other side of those that aren't. For example, if you read through Proverbs or any of the other books of wisdom, you will find that God's people are called the righteous. And if you look at the other side, those who are not God's people are called the unrighteous or the wicked. If you look at the side of those who are called the righteous in the wisdom books, They are the individuals who are called the wise individuals. If you look at on the other side of those who are not in a right relationship with God, they are called the fools. Beginning in Psalm 14, it is the fool that is said in his heart, there is no God. And so he's not looking at individuals based on their intellectual abilities. And he's not talking about just Silliness on the part of individuals. Foolishness, folly, sinfulness is what is being described. And in contrast to that, you have righteousness and wisdom as characteristic of God's people. And so here is a ruler shouting out, this is what we need to do, and people are clamoring without a clue as to what needs to be done, and those individuals are the fools, the ones that don't have that right relationship with God, those that have not cultivated that relationship with God, and therefore have the capability of knowing how to handle and how to cope with a problem that is there. But what do we have in contrast to that? A poor, wise man who could speak in the midst of the circumstance and bring out the solution where people would say, yep, that's what we need to do. And they followed what he said. The city was delivered. But then in all of the joyous celebration after that, they forgot all about the poor unknown individual who by his wisdom delivered the city. I've had examples in Uh, experiences of life that brought this same truth home to me. In fact, I even find it sometimes in theological circles where you have Christian men who are arguing areas of theology. And as they argue, you watch and faces and ears start turning red. They're not really listening anymore to one another. They're all trying to prove their point. And what you find in the midst of all of that 
What's really generated is heat, anger, hostility, not light. And what we really need in those circumstances is not to find out who can shout the most effectively to try to intimidate his opponent, but who knows how it is to properly handle and express what needs to be done. Early in my life, I was uh, associated with an executive council of a national organization. Not a Christian organization. It was very early in my Christian experience. But as that executive council was meeting, made up of about 50 people sitting there, they were debating some important topics as to what needed to be done for the well-being of this profession um, as we would make political overtures from it. And as the debate went along, the group became increasingly polarized and arguments were taking place and no solutions were found. And after about a half hour a nondescript man asked for the floor. And in a real composed, quiet calmness, he just said, here's what I think we need to do. He had the way to express it, along with the idea of what needed to be done that all of the infighting that was taking place was dissolved. He wasn't joining in with all of the debate that was taking place. He waited his time. And at the appropriate time, the words of the wise were expressed in quietness. And even those parties who were fighting against one another had to acknowledge this is what we need to do. And so the next day when the whole uh, conference was held with all of its members, the proposal was made by the executive council that was really the wisdom that this nondescript individual gave to the council to resolve its infighting and to make a unified presentation to the profession. What an example. The shouting of a ruler among fools. The debating, the heated discussions that go nowhere. And in contrast, the words of the wise given in quietness. To be able to skillfully Settle the argument to do it in a way that unifies the parties and brings about a beneficial result for all involved. But in spite of the superiority of such wisdom, Solomon gives us a caution. He says at the end of verse 18, one sinner destroys much good. Or, in verse 1 of chapter 10, a bad chapter break, 
because it's the proverbial concept that Solomon is using to reinforce what he has just said. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. See, today we have all types of perfumes. You probably, ladies, have your favorite. We have all types of aftershaves and colognes, and each of them have their distinct aroma, but not one of them has on its label the smell of dead flies. See, those perfumes are mixed with little ingredients to bring out that unique fragrance. And the point is, you add a dead fly as it begins to putrefy and you no longer have estilata. You no longer have the pleasant scent that you used to have. That small little problem of dead flies destroys the life work of this perfumer to put together that unique scent that is so desirable and so pleasing to an individual. So, dead flies, they make the perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Wisdom is superior to anything else. It's the most important resource available to any individual. But do you know what can destroy it, offset it? Just a little bit of sin. It's like dead flies in a perfumer's oil. And so, a little folly, a little sin... It does what? Well, it's got more impact than wisdom and honor. In other words, it ruins the expression of wisdom and the reputation and honor of an individual. Now, in all of this, I think Solomon is really giving us something to contemplate, to consider. He's actually providing us with some counsel. And what is it that we need to understand? I need to be careful about the dead flies in my life. You have them. I have them. And what I need to understand is those little dead flies are destructive to my reputation, to the impact that I have in the lives of others. It's weightier than wisdom and honor. I was looking through the scriptural records of great individuals. And what we find is there were some dead flies that had a tremendous impact. It doesn't have to be big um, a gross sins that an individual commits. It's those subtle little things that take place that begin to have an impact on the individual and those around them. 
They have a man that was known as the friend of God. Abraham. He just followed custom. What was the order of the day? His wife Sarah couldn't have a child. So through his concubine, he had Ishmael. Israel Arab. A little folly. A misguided decision. A small failure to rely upon and trust in the Lord with very serious and sobering consequences. There's a godly man by the name of Samuel. And Samuel saw in his own experience fatherhood through the priest by the name of Eli. What Eli failed to do was to bring his children up in the way God directed. And you want to know what Samuel's problem was? He failed to bring up his children the way God directed. What a tremendous ministry. He's a man that walked with God and was used of God to bring about the transition from the period of judges into the kingdom period. He anointed the first and the second king of Israel. But his sons didn't walk in the way of the Lord and therefore the people rejected Samuel when he said, I'm going to put my sons in my place. A wrong decision. We all know far too well a man by the name of David who was after the heart of God. And to me, when I think of David's life and all of the wonderful things God accomplished through him, how what clicks first and foremost in our minds is what? Bathsheba? Uriah? It impacted his reputation, his honor. It also impacted what would happen in the nation of Israel because of his position. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little folly, a little sin, a little failure to trust God, small compromises in one's life can have a huge impact. There's a godly king by the name of Josiah. He was ruling during the divided kingdom period. He was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Do you remember who the king was of the northern kingdom? It was a man by the name of Ahab. And there was an alliance that was designed between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Probably seemed like a good thing to do. To again unite the twelve tribes instead of fighting in civil wars against one another to now be on the same page and to seek to fulfill the same purpose. You know how that alliance was ratified? The son of Jehoshaphat by the name of Azariah was married to the daughter of Ahab by the name of Athaliah. And Athaliah was that wicked queen in the kingdom of Judah who tried to destroy 
the whole family of David. A subtle compromise. So a little follow can destroy great wisdom and honor. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, counseled by Isaiah, had God intervene and lengthen his life when he cried out to him in prayer. But he was lifted up with pride. And when the Babylonians came, he showed them all the wealth that had been uh, gathered in Jerusalem because of the good pleasure of the Lord. And so Isaiah had to rebuke Hezekiah and say, those kings that you favored are the ones that are going to march into Jerusalem and carry even some of your own descendants away into exile. So a little folly is weightier than wisdom and honor. How about the man who wrote this? I don't care how smart you are. You will never be on the same page as Solomon. God promised him there will never be a wiser man than you to live on the earth. His heart, through these alliances, was captivated by the foreign wise. And he compromised and built the altars and the temples to those foreign gods to placate the desires of his foreign wives. Never says Solomon worshipped those foreign gods, but that compromise on the part of Solomon opened the door for idolatry in the nation of Israel and eventually brought about the judgment of God in their captivity. So what's Solomon telling us? What's the point he's making? If you're a God-fearing person and you're seeking wisdom from Him in your daily life, don't become complacent. Certainly don't get lifted up with pride and begin to think, I got this, I can handle it. Recognize no matter how much you've grown with the Lord, you are still in utter dependence before Him. And that with true humility, you need to ask Him to enable you to stand by His grace so that you can properly handle the things that come and not do the things that are going to have a detrimental impact in your life, in your reputation, or in how it will impact others. There's dead flies in all of our lives. And they make perfume stink. There still are the remnants of and the expressions of sin. And no matter how much we've walked with the Lord, no matter how much He has transformed and changed us by His grace, we need Him every hour. We're utterly dependent upon Him. And true humility, we need to say, Lord, you are my good shepherd. I know that you're the one who takes care of my every need, so I never want. Be kind to me and lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake.
because dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. And the last thing that I as a child of God ever want to have happen is that the dead flies in my life adversely impact my family, my friends, my associates. But that God in His grace will cause me to walk in the way that is pleasing to Him. Let's pray.